Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. In space, no one can hear you scream. Does that mean in space no one could hear a podcast? In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 108, Alien. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And a huge hi and welcome to you all. This is not the Nostromo, this is Verbal Diorama and I am here with Jess, the cat of this particular ship. She is with me for this because, you know, kind of makes sense that she's here because there is a cat in this movie It's a very important cat. And so she really wanted to be here. She's being very good on my lap. She's being very well behaved at the moment. Whether that will last, who knows? She might vocalise her thoughts on Alien in a little bit. But whether you are a returning listener or a brand new listener to this podcast, I'm so grateful that you're here for the 108th episode of this podcast. And this is a big one, guys. This is one of the biggest movies ever. So yeah, this is a little bit monumentous actually for this podcast because Alien is a movie that I've wanted to cover for such a long time and a bit like Jaws actually. Alien and Jaws, they share a lot of similarities and Alien was pitched as Jaws in space. So the only reason I kind of didn't do them one after the other was because they are both huge movies and I wanted a slightly smaller one to go in the middle and that's where Last Action Hero came in. And Obviously, a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to and provided feedback on Jaws. Jaws was a super popular episode. I got so many comments on Jaws from people who'd never listened to the podcast before and they listened specifically for Jaws. So that was really, really nice. I hope that you're all still with me and I hope that a lot of you are keen on Alien as well because, you know, like I said, they are very similar. What I normally do is when I introduce an episode, normally I play the trailer. And it's something that I've done pretty much since the start of this podcast is I would play a trailer for the movie. Now, the trailer for Alien is incredibly visual. It has very minimal music. It has absolutely no dialogue. It relies on visual pacing. It basically culminates in rapid, scary shots and then into silence for the in space, no one can hear you scream tagline. It is probably one of the greatest trailers ever made, but completely useless for a podcast. So instead of playing a trailer that's literally just ominous music, although it is super great, what I'm going to suggest is that you stop this episode and you go onto YouTube and you watch the trailer because it really is genuinely petrifying how all horror movie trailers should be. Regular listeners to the podcast will know I'm not a huge fan of horror. But I do make exceptions. I make exceptions for comedy horror. And similarly with horror sci-fi, I've always kind of leaned towards it. I mentioned in the episode that I did on The Thing, sci-fi and horror for me really blend very well together. And The Thing is kind of a classic example, but Alien is 
kind of the first classic example of really great horror and really great sci-fi blended together. So I'm not going to play the trailer for Alien because it would be pointless. But I really do recommend that you stop listening and start watching the trailer because it is genuinely quite scary and... And very befitting of the movie that comes after. So we're just going to jump straight into a little summary of this movie. In the distant future, the crew of the commercial space strip Nostromo are on their way home when they pick up a distress call from a distant moon. The crew are under obligation to investigate and the spaceship descends on the planet. After a rough landing, three crew members leave the spaceship to explore the area. At the same time as they discover a hive colony of some unknown creature... The ship's computer deciphers the message to be a warning, not a distress call. Unbeknownst to them, they will soon take back with them the most terrifying creature in the universe, the Xenomorph. We'll quickly run through the cast of this movie. We have Tom Skerritt as Dallas, Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, Veronica Cartwright as Lambert, Harry Dean Stanton as Brett, John Hurt as Kane, Ian Holm as Ash, Yafat Koto as Parker, and Balaji Badejo as the alien. The screenplay for Alien was by Dan O'Bannon, the story by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett, and it was directed by Ridley Scott. I've featured John Carpenter a couple of times on this podcast for Big Trouble in Little China, and, as I said, for one of the greatest sci-fi horror movies ever made, The Thing. And Carpenter's directorial debut was a 1974 science fiction comedy called Dark Star, which Carpenter also produced and wrote alongside his USC college buddy Dan O'Bannon. The alien in Dark Star was created by spraying a beach ball and adding rubber claws. And when the movie failed to really make the audience laugh like he hoped, O'Bannon would turn his eye to making them scream in terror instead. His first horror attempt was a script called Memory, which involved a crew of astronauts in hypersleep awakened to a distress call on a mysterious planet, which they investigate and their ship breaks down. After that, O'Bannon had no idea of what the alien foe would be. These basic ideas would obviously make their way into the very first scenes of Alien. It was Dan O'Bannon's work on an unmade version of Dune that introduced him to artists Chris Voss, H.R. Geiger and Jean Garaud. When Dune fell through, O'Bannon returned to LA. He moved in with screenwriter and producer Ronald Shusett, who would go on to write and produce Total Recall, starring the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was in the previous episode of this podcast. Ronald Shusett had been a fan of Dark Star and expressed an interest in working with O'Bannon on his next project. So the two of them revived O'Bannon's script for memory and Shusett suggested Gremlins, not the 1984 movie, but the source of the word from the mechanical issues during the Second World War. Listen to episode 74 on Gremlins for more of that. But the idea was to have little critters on board a spaceship. And that idea stuck. The project was now called Star Beast, which is a completely ridiculous B-movie title. That name was changed to Alien after Dan O'Bannon realised how often the word Alien was used in the script that they were writing. Inspiration for Alien came from several well-known sources, including... The Thing from Another World, which is obviously the original version of The Thing, from Forbidden Planet and Planet of the Vampires, as well as the short story Junkyard by Clifford D. Simak and Strange Relations by Philip Jose Farmer. Inspiration was also taken from EC Comics, most famous for Tales from the Crypt. I've done an episode on Tales from the Crypt Demon 90s, episode 66. It's one of my favourite episodes. And that was mainly for the many inventive stories where monsters ate their way out of people. So they wanted a spaceship with a crew to land on a mysterious planet, but the question always remained about the actual alien creature itself. What would the alien creature be? How would the alien creature get aboard the ship? And how would it eat its way out of people? And this was where the alien impregnation comes in. And I want to talk more about the overt sexual imagery in a bit, but the idea was to have the alien secretly come aboard the ship and to do so it would essentially be a parasite. It would plant an embryo into the human host's body and then be transported onto the ship. In this original treatment, the main character of Ripley was a male character. But put a pin in that too, because I'll be talking about that also in a little bit. 85% of the script was finished and O'Bannon and Shusett presented their 
Jaws in Space pitched to several studios, with Roger Corman's studio almost winning the signature on the dotted line, until a friend of theirs passed the script to Gordon Carroll, David Guiler and Walter Hill, who had formed a production company called Brandywine. Brandywine had ties to 20th Century Fox. They signed the deal with Brandywine, which included numerous script rewrites by Hill and Guiler, which caused tension between them and Shusit and O'Bannon, because Shusit and O'Bannon were science fiction writers, and Hill and Guiler were not science fiction writers. But what Hill and Guiler did was they actually introduced the character of Ash to the script. And despite the fact the final script was written by Hill and Guiler, sole credit for the screenplay was given to Dan O'Bannon by the Writers Guild of America. While the script work was taking place, a little movie called Star Wars premiered in 1977. And suddenly, 20th Century Fox, who admittedly previously didn't think too much of this science fiction film, now had a very heightened interest in emulating the success of Star Wars. They basically wanted to follow through as soon as possible with something, literally anything set in space, and the only thing that they had ready to go was Alien. And so Alien started pre-production. They obviously needed a director, and while Dan O'Bannon assumed that he would also direct the movie, 20th Century Fox asked Walter Hill, who declined due to other commitments, as well as it being a very effects-heavy production. Ridley Scott's directorial debut, The Duelists, had come out in 1977 and impressed the Brandywine team sufficiently to offer Ridley Scott the directorial duties on Alien, which is interesting as well. Just like Jaws being Spielberg's sophomoric effort, Alien was similarly Ridley Scott's. Scott's detailed storyboards also impressed 20th Century Fox, who doubled Alien's budget based on them. Ridley Scott wanted to emulate the look of 2001 as Space Odyssey, as well as Star Wars in the look of Alien, but he also wanted the movie to be purely rooted in horror, and just like Jaws, rooted in Hitchcockian, I don't know if that's even a word, but I'm making it up, Hitchcockian horror. As I mentioned in the episode on Jaws, it lent more towards the suspenseful Hitchcock style of horror, the eliciting of fear in the audience, rather than showing people the horror, it was suggesting the horror. And this is something that Ridley Scott also wanted for Alien too. Attention soon turned to casting these seven human characters, all of which were written as unisex characters who could be portrayed as either a man or a woman. Ridley Scott, along with casting director Mary Selway in the UK and Mary Goldberg in the US, could interpret the characters as they saw fit and cast according to the strength of the actor. The crew of the Nostromo wouldn't be a group of billionaires, I'm looking at you Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, but a group of working class, middle-aged men and women that the audience could actually relate to more than a group of supermodels in space. Even now you read casting calls for parts looking for female actors and they still mention certain physical attributes, age ranges, personality traits like intense or good looking but she doesn't know it. Certain validations from men are required and how refreshing is it in that in 1978, this open-ended casting not only produced a diverse, interesting cast, but also gave us the best actors for the roles. I mean, who would think that that would be a good idea? I mean, hello. When it came to casting, Yafet Koto was advised by his agent to not take the part in Alien because the salary wasn't specified, but Koto took the role in Alien over two other offers that he had. Harry Dean Stanton was not a fan of sci-fi or horror and basically said so in his audition, but Ridley Scott managed to persuade him that he wasn't a fan either, but that he should be in the movie anyway. Tom Skerritt read the initial screenplay and was unimpressed, but after the script was edited and the budget increased, he signed on to play Dallas. Ridley Scott originally cast John Finch as Kane after John Hurt declined due to a scheduling conflict. Partway through filming, John Finch had an episode of hyperglycemia and Scott again asked Hurd to come in for the role. Hurd accepted and replaced Finch for the remainder of the filming. And the most important piece of casting, let's be honest, were the four identical ginger cats to play Jonesy. It's remarkable really that they got such good cat actors because cats are animals that are very much do their own thing, I should know. However, Jess is being extra super good right now. She is not making a noise. She's being a very good cat actor. She's just lying on my lap, chilling out. I'm hoping that she will make a noise because I want you guys to know that she is actually here. But she's being really, really good. So clearly 
This is a role that's also suited for a cat like Jess because the cat actors that they got to play Jonesy were very, very good and impressed Jess a hell of a lot. Obviously, Sigourney Weaver is the standout star of this movie. She is our final girl, so to speak, the traditional girl who survived to the end of the horror movie. But as the cast was coming together, the one issue was the casting of Ripley. So let's set the scene. It was May 1978 and the Alien production was underway at Shepperton Studios here in the UK. Sets were being designed and constructed and though the script was being hotly debated in the red corner, Dan O'Bannon, and in the blue corner, Guyler and Hill, refereeing was Ridley Scott. There was a lot of back and forth on this script. It is a great script, to be fair, but there was a lot of arguments going on and Ridley Scott was basically in the middle of them all the time. The alien itself had yet to be constructed, but H.R. Geiger's designs were hotly anticipated. I am going to be talking about the alien designs in a bit because they are clearly one of my favourite parts of this movie. Filming was scheduled to start in one month, but Ripley still hadn't been cast. And this was despite a huge search in both LA and New York. Veronica Cartwright had read for the part, and while Scott liked her, he didn't think that she really fit the bill for Ripley. Cartwright would of course be cast as Lambert instead and there's a little bit more than I need to go into on that because there was a lot going on behind the scenes with the casting of these particular female characters. 20th Century Fox pushed for a name actress to play Ripley and suggested Catherine Ross or Genevieve Bujold. After all, Star Wars had both Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness to bolster its cast of relative newcomers. Most famously, Helen Mirren read for the part of Ripley and the casting department put forward two final choices for the role. The first being the one, the only, Ms Meryl Streep. You guys know how much I love Meryl Streep. I've featured her a couple of times on this podcast. I think she's phenomenal. Meryl Streep was an up-and-coming theatre actress at the time. She had recently rapped on the movie The Deer Hunter, but her partner, John Cazale, was suffering from lung cancer and he passed away in March of 1978. And the production felt it was inappropriate to offer the role to Streep so soon after the death of her partner. The second name on their list was Sigourney Weaver. When the Alien script came through to Sigourney Weaver, she was starring in a play and headlining charity seminars. The Yale School of Drama alumni admitted she didn't care too much for the script for Alien and had an aversion to starring in science fiction, However, she did appreciate that the production had broken the gendered casting rule. She actually originally preferred the slightly lighter role of Lambert. Nevertheless, an audition was arranged and Ridley Scott, along with David Guyler, Gordon Carroll and Mary Goldberg, waited for Sigourney Weaver to turn up at this hotel. 25 minutes later, she still hadn't arrived. Turned out she had gone to the wrong hotel. She almost jacked in the audition due to her tardiness. The only reason she made it to the audition was the fact that her agent persuaded her to get to the other hotel. And so she turned up 30 minutes late to her audition. And then, not only was she 30 minutes late, she was also forthcoming about the issues that she had with the script and the shallowness of the characters. And the team who were auditioning her acknowledged these issues and were actually quite refreshed to her honest approach to the material they showed her a design for the alien creature by H.R. Geiger and Carlo Rambaldi, and she was immediately interested. And yes, I am slightly teasing you with the alien because I am going to come back to it, I promise. Despite her initially appearing to sabotage her audition, her refreshingly honest and upfront take was exactly what they wanted in the character of Ripley, along with her naivety and inexperience. She screen tested in a piece of set constructed just for her screen test, and she won the part of Ellen Ripley. There was a problem, though, with Sigourney Weaver taking the part of Ellen Ripley, because Veronica Cartwright also thought that she was playing Ellen Ripley. And so when she was called for wardrobe fittings for the character of Joan Lambert, she thought there'd been a mistake. She called her agent, who told her, no, 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 you are playing Ripley, or at least I think you are. But then it became very apparent to her that she was not playing Ripley, and that Sigourney Weaver had been cast in the role instead. Veronica Cartwright suggested after the fact that she felt internal politics were at play, and that even though it was Sigourney Weaver's first big role, that Sigourney Weaver got the role because her father was American TV executive and former president of NBC, Pat Weaver, and that her casting was based on studio pressure and 
maybe some form of nepotism. Many of Veronica Cartwright's scenes were also deleted from the finished movie, maybe due to the fact that she vocally complained about her replacement. Sigourney Weaver acknowledged she was in a privileged position and that could cause prejudice. And the fact that she was a relative unknown cast in a lead role and the only role that survived would naturally cause resentment between her and fellow castmates, which were on the most part a maturely aged crew. So Weaver and Cartwright were the youngest members of the cast at 29 and 30 respectively. The male cast members ranged from John Hurt, who was 39, to Harry Dean Stanton, who was 53. And this was a crew of low-class workers, not a band of space adventurers. And obviously themes of class would come up in the script too, with the engineers being paid less than the officers. Filming took place between the 5th of July to the 21st of October 1978 at Shepperton Studios, with model and miniature filming at Bray Studios in Berkshire. The sets were made of wood and fiberglass. Over 200 craftspeople and technicians constructed three principal sets, the surface of the alien planet, the interiors of the Nostromo, which was named after the 1904 novel by Joseph Conrad, and the derelict spacecraft. 124 scale miniatures of the planet's surface based on designs by H.R. Geiger were created by our director Les Dilly. Tons of plaster, sand, rocks, gravel and fiberglass were shipped into the studio just to create the desert landscape. For the scenes showing the exterior of the Nostromo, a 55-foot landing leg was constructed, but Ridley Scott didn't think it looked big enough. To combat this, he dressed his two young sons, as well as cinematographer Derek Van Lint's son, in smaller spacesuits to stand in for the regular actors to make the ship appear larger. So in the scenes where you see the three figures in spacesuits, they are actually children, which is one of my favourite facts about this movie. Three models of the Nostromo ship were constructed, a 12-inch version for medium and long shots, a 4-foot version for rear shots, and a 12-foot version for the undocking and planet surface scenes. The interior sets were built on three separate stages for each deck, and the actors navigated the hallways between the stages as part of the ship. The Wayland yutani Company isn't named an alien, but Wayland yutani products appear in the background. The name also changed between movies, so Wayland yutani without the D became Wayland yutani in Aliens. But this was to symbolise an alliance between Britain and Japan. Art director Roger Christian used scrap metal and parts to create set pieces and props, something he also did when he worked on Star Wars to save money. Scrapped aircraft were used for corridors, with mirrors used to make them appear longer. The ship was supposed to look old, worn and industrial with retrofitted equipment and old technology to make it apparent that this was not a high-class luxury vessel but a working-class engineering haulage ship with a crew to match. And the juxtaposition between the industrial Nostromo and the biomechanical alien was deliberate and they were supposed to instill a sense of eroticism with obvious human genitalia imagery. There are a lot of penises and vaginas in this movie. Uh, the egg chamber is supposed to be a womb, the space jockey being the obvious warning with a hole in its chest. That particular set, the space jockey set, was so expensive for one scene that 20th Century Fox were hesitant to spend the money. The production persuaded them it was necessary, but only one wall was created. And so the space jockey sat on a rotating disc to facilitate shots from a different angle. And basically what they did was they moved the wall. That was really how simple that was. But I kind of feel like I've teased the alien enough. Let's talk about the actual bread and butter stuff. Let's talk about the reason why I love Alien and the reason why everyone loves Alien. Verbal Diorama is a podcast that talks a lot about practical effects. It's one of my favourite things about movies is when special effects are practical because A, it always ages better and B, it just looks tangible and real. These are some of the best and scariest creature effects that I've pretty much ever seen in my life. And to be fair, like I say, I don't watch a lot of horror, but this is the sort of horror that I really like. I've mentioned H.R. Geiger a couple of times. His painting, Necronom 4, was created in 1976. It's a curious mystical beast with lots of phallic imagery. If you see Necronom 4, it's very easy to see the similarities between that and the Xenomorph. If I remember, I'll post an image on social media because you will very clearly see where the inspiration for the Xenomorph actually came from. Geiger was known for his biomechanical imagery and the Brandywine team fought 20th Century Fox to use his work. 
Geiger would consult on the alien planet, the spacecraft, and all forms of the alien. So from egg through to facehugger, chestburster, and also the fully grown adult alien. The egg was made of fiberglass and the movement inside was provided by Ridley Scott wearing gloves. The top of the egg was hydraulic and the innards were made out of a cow's stomach and tripe. The iconic image on the poster is not the egg in the movie. That is actually a hen's egg. Test shots were filmed using hen's eggs. And so this is why the egg on the poster looks nothing like the egg in the movie. The lighting effects in the egg chamber were actually lasers borrowed from the band The Who, who were testing their lasers in the next stage. The face hugger was the first creature H.R. Geiger designed. He designed it to have long human-like fingers and a long tail. It was shot out of the egg with high-pressure air hoses. The idea it had acid blood meant the creature couldn't be cut off and that was carried over to the alien to make it harder to kill. And the dead face hugger's viscera comprised of fresh shellfish, oysters and a sheep's kidney. And because it was real meat, it would go off very quickly under studio lights. So they had to film it very quickly because very quickly it would not be so fresh. Moving on to the chest burster. So the chest burster is probably one of the most iconic images in all of cinema. It was inspired by Francis Bacon's 1944 triptych painting, Three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion, which was in turn based on the Eumenes of Aeschylus Orestia. I hope I pronounced that right. <laughs> you know I'm terrible at pronunciation. Eumenides of Aeschylus's Orestia. I think that's what it is. This famous scene had John Hurt's head and arms with a fake torso, from which the chestburster alien would emerge. All of the cast knew that this was happening, but they didn't know about the fake blood that would squirt out using high-pressure pumps and squibs. When the creature burst through Hurst's chest, actually just a puppy on a stick, fake blood squirted directly at Veronica Cartwright, whose reaction was caught on camera. No one was expecting the intense, visceral, bloody experience, so all reactions that you see are genuine. The creature running off is simply a slit in the table for the stick puppy to travel down, with air hoses making the tail whip about. Despite the simplicity of the effect, it's still as effective now as it was in 1979. It is the beauty of practical effects, am I right? I know it looks cheesy, but it still looks great. I love this scene. It still genuinely terrifies and delights me in equal measure. And it is genuinely one of the most memorable scenes in cinema. Oh, do you agree? She's finally said something. I don't know if the microphone picked that up, but she finally said something. The alien. So the alien suit was mostly portrayed by six foot ten inch Balaji Badejo, as well as also stuntmen Eddie Powell and Roy Scammell. And this was a latex bodysuit with a head manufactured by Carlo Rambaldi with hinges and cables to operate the tongue, which famously had its own set of teeth. The head had around 900 moving parts and points of articulation. The alien was purposely not shown in full for most of the movie to heighten suspense and create that sense of terror just like Jaws did with the darkness of the ship used to full effect to provide all the necessary jump scares such as the one that always gets me Dallas in the ventilation system <laughs> because it just comes out of nowhere and I know that it's coming but it really really frightens me every single time I've mentioned the erotic imagery, the genitalia, the phallic shapes, the way the chestburster is born, kind of invokes a sense of violent childbirth in a way. The metaphors are all there. While humanity will always be curious about, but ultimately fear the unknown, there's another universal fear at play in Alien, and that is sexual violence, specifically male rape. Dan O'Bannon wrote the screenplay specifically as a metaphor for the male fear of penetration, and as payback for the many horror movies where vulnerable women are attacked violently by predominantly male monsters. But it works on many levels. As that seminal alien threat, as well as dealing with a contagious virus or a parasite, such as the many COVID-19 memes to do with alien, this is another thing that the movie shares with Jaws, but mostly this is a movie about non-consensual sex and reproduction that occurs after rape and it happens to a male member of the crew, which I think is really important, actually. I think we underestimate the importance of this movie, and I'm gonna to come to the rating of this movie uh, a bit later, but here in the UK, it was given an incredibly high rating for the sexual imagery 
in the movie. Not really for what you might think either, which is similarly baffling, but this is the sort of movie that men can watch and actually finally appreciate the genuine fear that it is to be a woman and potentially be on the receiving end of sexual violence. Because in this movie, anyone could be attacked by the alien, but the person who is attacked and violated first is a man. And I think that's really, really important. After Alien's release, Dan O'Bannon would end up being sued by another writer who claimed that O'Bannon plagiarised a script called Black Space. O'Bannon proved that his script was written first, so that lawsuit went nowhere. But I think it's safe to say that Alien changed the face of science fiction and horror. Many similar Alien-themed movies would come after it. And I don't just mean its sequels, which I'll come to. Horror has kind of always gone hand in hand with sexual imagery, usually to punish the women in the story. Alien remains a refreshing change in not only its gender-free casting choices, but also its reframing of sexual horror firmly placed at the feet of male characters. And really nothing has ever come close to emulating Alien in that respect. I kind of feel like it's very hard to segue from this discussion on Alien and sexual horror, but I'm going to because I need to go into this episode's obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And Keanu has famously played an alien. He played the alien Klaatu in the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. I mean, obviously, he wasn't putting his alien spawn into humans. Not that I remember from that movie anyway. But I will say, I did actually watch this movie for the first time quite recently. And I actually kind of enjoyed it. And I know that a lot of people have an issue with it because it's a remake. I've not seen the original. I am really terrible at seeing the originals of most movies. I tend to always watch the remake and I know that's really bad of me. But it's okay. Like, it's fine. And I think Keanu's fine in the movie. But yeah, he also similarly played an alien. So that's the reference, guys. (laughs) That's where we're going. I have not run out of obligatory Keanu references yet. Jaws was very, very tentative. This is slightly better. But yeah, it's, it's... I mean, it's not great, but it's an alien being, so it'll do. Let's talk about the music for Alien. The musical score was composed by Jerry Goldsmith. It was conducted by Lionel Newman and performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra. Ridley Scott had originally wanted the film to be scored by Asayo Tomita, but 20th Century Fox wanted a more familiar composer. Scott didn't like Goldsmith's original title piece, so Goldsmith rewrote it. But overall, Scott praised Goldsmith's score as full of dark beauty and seriously threatening but beautiful. It was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Score, a Grammy Award for Best Soundtrack Album and a BAFTA Award for Best Film Music. When it was released, Alien actually had no formal premiere in the US. But when it was released, it was released as a limited release on the 25th of May 1979 And it basically had really good word of mouth because there were long queues to get into the Grauman's Egyptian Theatre in Hollywood. It was released wide on the 22nd of June, 1979. Here in the UK, it premiered at the Edinburgh Film Festival on the 1st of September, 1979, running exclusively at the Odeon Leicester Square from the 6th of September, 1979. But it ended up taking four months to get a wide release and it didn't actually open wide here in the UK till the 13th of January 1980. When it was finally released here, it was rated by the British Board of Film Classification, the BBFC, and it was originally given an X rating, which is basically the 1979 version of the current 18 rating. And this was for offering, and I quote, a perverse view of the reproductive function. But this wasn't for any scene that you're probably thinking of. So it wasn't the chestburster scene, it wasn't the face hugger scene, It was specifically the egg chamber scene, when the egg opens to reveal a creature inside. And here's a quote from the censor. I feel uneasy about passing for 14-year-olds a film which uses sexual imagery in a horror context. The images are not always explicit, but run like a dark undercurrent throughout, suggesting a powerful, threatening, unnamed force. Basically, the censor involved was concerned how it would affect teenagers' understanding of sex, which seems pretty ridiculous by today's standards, but obviously this was the late 1970s, early 1980s. Fox actually didn't contend the X rating, believing it would be easier to sell as a horror movie with an X rating than without it. 
For context, the rating beneath X was AA, and this was for 14 years old and over. And now that rating is the 15 rating, and now Alien is rated 15 here in the UK. It's not quite as violent and horrific as something that would warrant an 18 rating over here. But it's quite interesting that they saw sexual horror in the egg chamber, but they didn't see sexual horror anywhere else. Because let's face it, this movie is full of sexual horror imagery. So let's talk about money. Alien grossed $78.9 million in the US and $7.8 million in the UK on its initial release, which sounds low, but then you put into account that it's been reissued several times over the years. Fox's worldwide gross is stated at $143 million. However, whether you can trust that figure is kind of yet to be determined because Hollywood Creative Accounting, a process by which studios can claim projects have gained or lost money due to shifting accounts from one project to another in order to limit bonus or revenue payments, was blamed for 20th Century Fox's insistence that Alien lost the studio $2 million in its first 11 months. After a dispute with Brandywine, Fox changed their stance to say, no, actually, it made a $4 million profit, but this was again disputed. Brandywine ended up suing Fox, and a lawsuit was settled in 1983 when Fox agreed to fund the sequel, which became Aliens. But that story is for another episode of this podcast, coming soon. Very soon, actually. Possibly next month, but you didn't hear that from me because... In podcast land, no one can hear you tease upcoming episodes. When it came to critics' responses, I was very surprised when I read that the initial reaction from critics was quite mixed for this movie because I've only ever known people thinking this movie is excellent. It has since been reappraised by most. It's generally seen as one of the greatest horror sci-fi movies ever made. Sits at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. But on its original release, critics like Leonard Maltin weren't actually very impressed. He actually did reassess the movie when its director's cut came out in 2003 and he went on to give it a more positive review. And speaking of the director's cut, just while I remember, for the first time on Verbal Diorama actually, I rewatched both the theatrical version and I watched the director's cut as well for the first time. And I have to say, I prefer the theatrical version, but I appreciated some of the additional director's cut scenes. Overall for me, the theatrical version is a masterpiece. It still makes me jump, it still intrigues and delights me, and it's still one of my favourite sci-fi movies. I don't feel like the director's cut adds really much to the conversation, although I do appreciate some of the scenes that were taken away, such as when Ripley asks Ash's permission to check the message. I like that the director's cut didn't have that, but similarly, I didn't like some of the additional scenes that were put in, such as Lambert's character slapping Ripley across the face, because Ripley did the right thing, okay? The fact that the protocol was to quarantine for 24 hours, Kane had a being on his face. They should not have let them in. Ripley was absolutely right, and I didn't like the fact that Lambert slapped her across the face for actually doing the right thing. So, yeah, I was not keen. The director's cut is still pretty great, but the theatrical version, I think, is the superior version. When it came to awards, it won Best Visual Effects at the Academy Awards. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction. At the BAFTAs, it won for Best Production Design and Best Sound, also being nominated for the Anthony Asquith Award for Film Music, Best Costume Design, Best Editing, and Best Supporting Actor for John Hurt. So let's talk about sequels, because Aliens is coming soon to this podcast, and I'm very excited. I actually, when I was re-watching Alien, so I watched the theatrical version and then I watched the director's cut and then I actually watched Aliens the day after <laughs> because I really wanted to see the continuation of the story again but I will be re-watching Aliens for this podcast in September and I'm very excited to talk about Aliens because Aliens is my favourite out of the franchise so I'm very excited to be talking about Aliens. There's also Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. Also movies that I've re-watched recently as well I have mixed views on Alien 3. It's the one that I remembered the least of. And I didn't think it was awful, but I can certainly see why fans aren't keen. And I didn't watch the director's cut of Alien 3, but I have heard it's better than the theatrical. And just on Alien Resurrection, that is the sequel that I've seen the most recently. 
I remember Alien Resurrection quite vividly. It has some very vivid imagery and scenes that I never got out of my head when Ripley meets all the different clones and she has to kill them all. It's not a great movie and it has a lot of problems and I can't say that I'm going to come to Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection anytime soon on this podcast, but I might. I might do the whole quadrilogy, finish the quadrilogy, get Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection done because I know that they have some interesting stories behind the scenes and I certainly think it's Important to know what was going on in the background when those movies were made. Anyway, there was also Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I've seen Prometheus. I kind of wasn't all that impressed with Prometheus, I'll be honest. I've seen some of Alien Covenant, but it actually annoyed me a little bit because I kind of felt like the people were being dumb for no reason. There's also the Alien vs Predator crossovers, plus a raft of other movies that were inspired by Alien including but not limited to Pitch Black, most recently Life as well, which has very, very strong alien vibes. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Chessbursters' second most famous appearance in film, which is in Mel Brooks' classic Spaceballs, also starring John Hurt, where the Chessburster bursts out of John Hurt's chest and sings, Hello, my baby, hello, mommy, hello, my ragtime gal, which is literally one of the best cameos in all of cinema. And I won't hear otherwise. One little fact that I really liked about this movie was North Bergen High School in New Jersey adapted Alien into a school play in 2019. They made props and sets. They used recycled toys. Ridley Scott wrote them a letter of congratulations after social media kind of stepped up and they found Ridley Scott in their tweets. Scott donated to the school to put on an encore performance, which was attended by none other than Ellen Ripley herself, Sigourney Weaver, who came on stage to congratulate the school for their creativity and commitment. And I've seen a clip online. It is genuinely one of the most brilliant things that a school has ever put on. It's quite astonishing. So if you happen upon this clip of North Bergen High School doing Alien, it will bring you so much joy because it's really, truly, genuinely brilliant what those kids managed to achieve. There's also an excellent documentary on the making of Alien. It's called The Beast Within, The Making of Alien, obviously. Uh, A lot of the information from this podcast actually came from the facts in that documentary. It is available on the Alien Quadrilogy DVD. Right, let's move on to patron thoughts. So I always like to ask people on social media, and I start with the patrons of this podcast. And we're going to start with Dan. And Dan says... The perfect film. It takes a simple haunted house story and elevates it with an atmosphere that perfectly embodies dread. The Nostromo set design is full of looks and crannies and the direction makes you think there's something lurking in each and every one. In short, Ridley Scott has never equaled his work on this film. And Andy says, In the Alien series, this stands head and shoulders and vestigial tongues above the rest. A film that really looks and feels completely unscripted, adding to the unpredictable and terrifying nature of the story. The darkness of the set, the pea suit green of the scanning text, and the indifferent voice of the mother computer adds to the hopelessness. A pure gem, and it will take a lot to really unseat this. And Andy, obviously, one of the hosts of the tremendous podcast Geek Salad. They are a podcast which is basically a one-stop shop for all of your geeky, trivia, news, reviews, all of that sort of stuff. Basically anything and everything to do with geek. So make sure you check out Geek Salad. I will put a link in the show notes. There's also a comment from Scott who says, I have been obsessed with the Alien series since I was allowed to watch Aliens as a youngling. So to finally get my hands on Alien a few years later was a biblical moment for me. It is an absolute masterpiece. The scale and inventiveness of the design, the performances, the pervading sense of terror, the iconic xenomorph, and of course the arrival of one of the greatest heroes in all of cinema. Everything is operating on a different level to anything else like it at the time. Even knowing the film inside out, getting to see it on the big screen for its 40th anniversary really nailed home how it has retained its power to unsettle and provoke fear. I even wager that one of the most unsettling moments doesn't even involve the alien, with the reveal of Ash's true nature. Although the chestburster and Lambert's off-screen death are still horrific, the latter, because of what we can hear in her frankly haunting screams and what we can envisage rather than what Ridley Scott shows us, absolutely in my movie hall of fame and scott is one of the hosts of the monkey see monkey review podcast and scott is a really good friend of mine we actually went to see the suicide squad together so i am a big fan of scott i am a big fan of his podcast it is on hiatus at the moment 
Scott and the rest of the guys, they've got all sorts of stuff going on, obviously, including going to the cinema with me. So uh, <laughs> you should absolutely check out Monkey See Monkey Review. They are so enthusiastic about film and about the experiences of watching film. Um, and that's one of the things that I always take away from Monkey See Monkey Review. And Scott is such a lovely guy. He's one of the most wonderful people that I've kind of met on this podcasting journey. So please check out his podcast. I know he would really, really appreciate that. And hopefully they will be back podcasting soon. We also have a patron comment from Brendan who says, Alien isn't just the perfect sci-fi horror film. It's a great gateway from casual scary movie fare into harder stuff, offering unmatched production and creature design and dynamite characters to chew on but with only a few splattery scenes to deal with, but what an impression they make. It stands as both a perfectly self-contained film and a gateway to further horrors and thrills, and is arguably the best film of Ridley Scott's career. We have a comment from Derek who says, Alien is one of the all-time greatest. It's a gorgeous horror show of sci-fi and reminds us all to listen to the smartest person in the room, especially if that person is a woman. I love all of the Alien films, but the first is still the greatest. And cats are the best. And I think Jess will agree with you, Derek, that yes, cats are the best. Derek is one of the hosts of the podcast The Midnight Myth, which he hosts alongside his wife, Laurel. And together they delve into the history, philosophy and mythology of modern pop culture. That's movies and TV shows. It's always fascinating and completely mind-blowing. And The Midnight Myth have actually done an episode on Alien which you should absolutely listen to. So I will link to that in the show notes. Uh, we also have a comment from Emily and she says, I saw this for the first time as an adult a few years back and I was blown away by the practical effects and intensity of the story. Ripley is such a badass too. I love her character so much. I enjoyed every minute of it and now I get to joke in space balls. And Emily is one of the hosts of I Drink Your Podcast. It's the podcast that exclusively looks at movies from 2007. I actually guest starred on their podcast for Hot Fuzz, which was a lot of fun. I actually explained what a Cornetto was. And basically that Cornettos were luxury ice creams when I was a kid. Make sure that you check out I Drink Your Podcast. Uh, links, as always, in the show notes. And a huge thank you to all of the patrons for their thoughts on Alien. I'm going to move over to Twitter. Um, and we've got a few comments on Twitter. We're going to start with at ThiefCGT, who says, Ooh, nice. It's pretty much perfect. I'm always amazed by how the film can still hold the tension, even though we know what's going to happen. But what Scott did with just great direction and acting, not necessarily SFX, is impressive. For example, Dallas in the ducts, Brett in that dripping room, all instances where we don't see or hardly see anything, and yet it still makes me fidget in my chair. Another thing I love is how real the characters and the ship feels. It's an amazing film. At Orland underscore MFC said, The Xenomorph was just scared and alone. Capitalism is the real villain. <laughs> That's a good one, I like that. At Connections Cult said, Alien success owes as much to Dan O'Bannon as it does to Ridley Scott. A seminal film in putting women front and centre in general, not just in horror. And at Trivia underscore Chic said, I love it when the little guy finds a hat. Joke, Alien changed the game in a lot of ways. One look at it even today and you can still feel that. It's iconic character designs, incredible cast and a simple yet highly effective story show off a legendary mix of sci-fi and horror. Uh, Little Guy Finding a Hat is obviously another reference to Spaceballs. At Spyheart said, Whenever I see this scene in Alien, my mind goes to this. And added a gif of the little guy dancing in Spaceballs. There's a lot of references to Spaceballs in this episode. I am not sad about that because I adore Spaceballs. Uh, I think I mentioned that on the Robin Hood Men in Tights episode that I, I similarly very much enjoy Spaceballs. And then at It's a Musical Pod came back with really because mine goes to Shrek 2. Uh, and obviously Shrek 2 also parodies this particular scene. Shrek 2 might be coming up on this podcast soon. So look out for Shrek 2. Uh, and hopefully I can reference Alien in that episode too. Moving over to Instagram. So we don't normally get very many comments on Instagram, but we've actually got quite a few comments on Instagram this time round. So we're going to start with that friendly Sparpod who said, perhaps the most iconic sci-fi film not named Star Wars in the last 50 years. At Betamax Video Club said, Ah oh man, I love Spaceballs. Everyone loves Spaceballs. 
at Marco Lo Campos said the alien was born in wheels. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but okay, I'll take it anyway. At the critic and the common man said classic movie with a little fire emoji. And at SP underscore film viewers said, wish I could have been a fly on the wall at the first screening of the film. Would have loved to have seen everyone's reaction to that chestburster scene. We don't have any comments on Facebook. Um, but again, just n- <laughs> we never really get any on Facebook anyway. But a huge thank you to everyone who took the time to comment on Alien. Uh, it is such a beloved movie for so many reasons. And, uh, and yeah, clearly everyone loves it as much as I do, which is awesome. There's honestly nothing I don't love about Alien. And that's despite the fact that I'm not a fan of horror and I hate jump scares with a passion. This movie terrifies me, but it does it in such a way that I will always come back to it. Mainly for the stunning visuals and creature design. I adore how this movie looks. I love the whole biomechanical feel to it, the striking violence and gore, as well as the fact that I grew up admiring Ellen Ripley. So much so I lament that we've never really had a character quite like her since. I feel like Ripley will go down as being one of cinema's greatest characters and all because the role was firstly written for a man and then as gender ambiguous. That One of the things that I love about her is that her femininity never takes away from her strength. That a woman can be and have both of those things was immensely important to young M growing up. The female cinematic role models were few and far between in the 80s and 90s and it was mainly Ripley and Sarah Connor and Princess Leia They were kind of the main heroes for me. They were what I wanted to be. And while I didn't watch Alien when I was young, I knew who Ellen Ripley was. Everyone just kind of knew who she was, but no one could actually watch the movies because because our parents wouldn't let us. Rewatching Alien, both versions, as I said, reminded me of how definitive this movie feels. It wasn't the first to combine sci-fi and horror, but it feels still so genre-defining. It's set in the future, and yet there's still a class system. There's still a small sense of gender roles playing a part, you know, where Ripley is undermined. The fact it appeals to critics as well as regular cinema goers, and it appeals to horror fans, sci-fi fans, thriller fans, and most importantly, both men and women can appreciate it for different reasons. But the fact that men can finally understand in some small part the anxieties that women experience through the threat of sexual violence with a creature that has never been equaled Not even by its own evolution, apart from maybe the alien queen and aliens. But again, I'll come to that in a future episode. Because if there's one thing more terrifying than one xenomorph, it's a lot of xenomorphs and a queen xenomorph. Like Jaws, it taps into humanity's greatest fears. The fear of the unknown, the fear of creatures that could come out of the dark and kill you, and the fear of sexual violence. Having Ripley overcome the alien and not a male character also feels significant to gender representation and horror representation. That everyone should fear rape and that sexual assault is not just limited to female victims and male perpetrators. And this is kind of especially apt, you know, when we talk about the Me Too movement era, that all survivors should be believed because there are horrors in this world too. They may not be as obvious as an alien being, But they could also be hiding in a ship somewhere. And I kind of don't want to end this episode on a low point. But while some might lament the fact that Ripley goes back for Jonesy. I love that she goes back for Jonesy. Because anyone who goes back to save an animal is genuinely a hero as far as I'm concerned. And Jess loves it too. She is still with me. She's still lying on my lap. She's still being very, very good. She did make a couple of brief sounds. But otherwise... You're being an excellent girl, aren't you? It's because we're talking about Alien and she really likes the movie. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Alien. And if you did enjoy this episode and you do want to help Verbal Diorama, then you can do so in several ways. So you could simply tell your friends or family about this podcast. You could retweet or like posts on social media, or you could leave a five-star rating or review. I mean, it doesn't have to be five stars. I'm not telling you it has to be five stars. You could just, you could leave a one-star rating and review if you really want to, if you feel like this episode is rubbish. Uh, But, you know, if you're going to leave a one-star review, you at least need to let me know why you think it's a one-star podcast. I'm very proud of the fact that this podcast has only ever really had five-star reviews. A couple of two-star ratings, I think, at some point, but they didn't tell me why, so kind of disregard those but on the most part people who listen to this podcast really love it and I'm so grateful so yeah if you want to help out you can do those things 
If you like this episode on aliens specifically, then you might also like one of the following episodes. I'm going to recommend episode 41, Tremors, because, I mean, it's a giant worm in the sand. I mean, it's... What else do you want in life? It's obviously a comedy, but it is one of the best kind of 50s B-movie comedies. Alien kind of doesn't lean into its B-movie roots, but Tremors does. And Tremors is a hell of a lot of fun. It's also on Netflix here in the UK now, so you should definitely check out Tremors. Episode 48, The Thing, obviously, because it is also one of the greatest sci-fi horror movies ever made. Obviously, it's a John Carpenter movie. It's full of suspense and fear. You never know who The Thing is. And it genuinely is one of my favourite movies, just like Alien. But the main one that I wanted to recommend was episode 106, Jaws. Because there's so many parallels between Jaws and Alien. As I said, this was basically pitched as Jaws in space. And there, there are so many similarities between the two. If you're a fan of Jaws and you've not seen Alien, then you should absolutely see Alien. And if you're a fan of Alien and you've not seen Jaws, you should absolutely see Jaws. And obviously listen to my episode too, please. But give me feedback. Let me know if you think I missed anything. There's going to be jump scares in the next episode too. But very different type of scares because the next episode is going to be on Pan's Labyrinth, which to me is Guillermo del Toro's magnum opus. It's one of the most beautiful and devastating movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's full of stunning creature work. It's a beautiful fantasy world. It can only come from the mind of Guillermo del Toro and it genuinely is petrifying. So, you know, if you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, you know what I mean when I say it's petrifying. I am actually quite frightened to watch Pan's Labyrinth again. I've not seen it in a long time. It frightens me. It makes me cry. It kind of fills me with wonder. But it's an amazing story and I've always wanted to talk about it on the podcast. So the next episode is going to be on Pan's Labyrinth. So please join me for that movie and please see that movie if you haven't. Guillermo del Toro won all of the Oscars for The Shape of Water. He should have won for Pan's Labyrinth. That might be a controversial take, but that is what I'm going to take to my grave. If you want to follow me and chat to me on social media, you can do so. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can also sign up to support the show at Patreon, uh, verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. Huge thank you, as always, to the patrons of this podcast, to Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. Have a merch store too, verbaldiorama.com slash merch. But yeah, less said about that, the better. If you want to email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go to verbaldiorama.com and fill out a little form. And also I write for Film Stories so you can pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can check out articles that I write and you can also buy copies of the magazine. There's a new issue that's just come out. So yeah. And finally, I was going to say come on cat because of Jonesy, but to be honest, you've been really good. Do you want to say something? Anything? How do you feel about Alien? I don't think the mic picked that up. You don't want to say anything louder? Come on, I'm recording a podcast. You're supposed to like shout, that's what you do. You normally stand outside this door and you shout and shout. And now you're being good as gold. And you're not going to say anything to the nice people listening. Come on. Say something. <laughs> oh, you're ridiculous. You're really cute, though. You're cuter than Jonesy. You going to say anything? I can't believe you're showing me up. You're showing me up on my own podcast. This is literally the first time in your life that you've been silent. So, um, yeah, she's not going to say anything. <laughs> she's just going to lie here and be really good. Um, so, yeah, I guess. Come on, cat. <laughs> 
I'm just going to have to end with bye. Unless you've got something to say? No. No, she's got nothing to say. So we're just going to say bye. Bye. A few moments later. Listeners, I'm just editing this podcast and uh, now she's awake. Now she's saying stuff. This is what I wanted earlier. Jess, what do you think of Alien? Do you like it? Is it your favourite? Do you like Jonesy? Is Jonesy your favourite character? Is Ripley your favourite character? <laughs> what do you think of uh, Chess? But oh, crikey! Jess, what do you think of the uh, Chess Burster in Alien? No, she doesn't like that. Okay, I think we're done. <laughs>